0: Hello and welcome. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, your host on this, our weekly radio show, about letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, as you know, we explore and describe and celebrate the principles and practices, concepts and tools, methods and strategies of the technologies of the Visual Workplace we study and talk about and turn over and turn inside out people issues and the results that we get when we let the workplace speak. And the outcome the outcome that you get is in a visual workplace is informational transparency. Information that you can pull when and as you need it, it's accurate, it's complete, it's timely, it's there because you put it there in the form of visual devices. You connect up the organization, and as a result, the culture is transformed. You are embedding the operational language into the living landscape of work. You are embedding your intelligence and the intelligence of the people you work with in the form of visual devices and mini systems. Everybody gets involved. You too. (laughs) It's my favorite line. You too. You too. I mean it. You may not see it right now. You may see that others do it with your hands going across your chest, pointing in opposite directions and saying, they're going to do it. But no, you have to do it too. And you will do it as soon as you see how it will help you. And I think today we'll advance that. But let me just say a few more things. If you want to contact us, our website is visualworkplace.com. If you want information about art, about articles, about our podcast, just go on our website, it's clearly marked, they're free for you to read, to download, you'll find information on my books, and the products and services we deliver on site as we help companies really all over the world convert to a workplace that speaks. And if you want more information, or if you want to arrange for me or one of our certified affiliates, to work with you at your own company, just email us at radio at visualworkplace.com. We're happy to help. You can also email us directly off of our website, visualworkplace.com. Our pleasure. Yes, we have a mission, and that mission is to spread the word about workplace visuality. And now let us continue. Let us continue with our march, our rump through Work That Makes Sense, a book that I published in 2011, and we are in the process of updating now. I'm not sure if the update is going to warrant a new, what's called a new ISBN. It's the number. We're supposed to change 25% of the content in order for it to warrant it being a second edition. I'm not sure if we'll do that, but we will do some uh, edits and clarifications. And I wanted to talk about work that makes sense, operator-led visuality, and why I wrote the book. This is an explanation, and I think it's very interesting. In fact, for me at the time, I had no intention of writing this book, but some things happened that made it completely inevitable. I wrote this book because of the many people who knew my previous work In amplifying the impact and success of 5S, and they approached me. This was in about 2007. It was a time when 5S, which had arrived on our shores in the West from Japan in the very, very early 1980s, 81, 82, even 1979, some say, arrived on our shores to cheers and welcome. But some 20 years later, it had gained a reputation of being a problem. It had gained a reputation of not making a contribution, not supporting the growth and development of operators, but for building walls, for building walls between the authority of management and the desire for inclusion of value add associates operators, hourly employees. 5S, 5S, which in Japan was a compliance mechanism, a tool, one tool among many that Japanese companies used to carve out an improvement role for associates, was used as an apl- a compliance tool in the United States as well, but without the other so-called empowerment tools that the Japanese had developed. In Japan, 5S was never a developmental process. It was created, some assign that to Taiichi Ono, the co architect of the Toyota production system, along with Shigeo Shingo. It was developed in order by Ono to create more safety for his employees, so that they could be more at ease and do a better job in terms of quality and paying attention to the detail that is needed for manufacturing automobiles. 5S was never created to develop people. 5S was created in Japan to install a proper relationship between work and dirt, work and disorder, work and unpredictability. It did just, it reversed those. It was about a clean workplace, white glove clean. It was about order that was anchored in lines and labels. And it was about following processes repeatedly, repeatedly. Another aspect of that is standard work, which, is always, which has been in place for as long as long, if not longer, than 5S. It was to help hourly employees feel safe and do a better job. Japanese companies at that time and still have other approaches for so-called what we call in the West empowerment for continuous improvement. There's Kaizen, the true Kaizen by MI. Quality circles. They came to the United States in 1972 or three, and we thought that was the big secret. High, high premium on participation, on involvement, on creativity for operators. Kata, which came to the the United States quite late, was for the cultivation of a personal developmental relationship between supervisors and their direct reports hourly employees. So 5S came to the United States in the full Japanese form, and it failed. In large measure, it failed. It went through a cycle of failure and pushback that lasted almost 20 years. Almost 20 years of management pushing the form and the westernized employee the U.S. employee not liking it all that much. Of course, there were exceptions. Some companies shaped or reshaped 5S so that it became more of a creative contribution because they were faced with the same pushback that I experienced when I began to implement 5S in the 1980s, and they did what I did. They said, there's something good here. Let's make it more palatable. Let's put some sugar in this medicine. Let's make it about creativity and let's make it about fun and let's make it make it about building the team. But for the most part, with rare exception, my work was one such exception, and I'm sure there were others that I didn't know about, 5S always kept the compliance requirement. Certain marks were preset and you had to hit them. And the audit, of course, supported that and also irritated that, that it was a compliance tool. We were telling people, adults who had adult lives, who were deacons in their churches, who had complete families, who paid their mortgages, who were responsible citizens, we were telling them to be neat and clean, very much as though they were children. It was not missed by the U.S. workforce, who the U.S. workforce that I know and love is a group, a large group of strong, patriotic, thinking, responsible, committed individuals who do not like to be treated as children. (laughs) They are adults and they know it. I had a lot, a lot of difficulty with that in the 1980s, so much so that I left the company that I was working for, Productivity Inc., to go off on my own and explore the form because my bosses at Productivity said, ignore the signs of defeat, just go out there, keep teaching this, we're making money, you're doing a really good job, but I knew something was wrong. I knew that I could not push 5S as part of the Japanese miracle. It was failing, it was clear. I never got a cycle of 5S to roll over to the next cycle unless I was there pushing it, pushing it on behalf of management. Okay, from the very beginning, failure after failure in the 1980s, and then I finally left the company. And when I left the company and went off on my own, started my own company at the time, it was called Quality Methods, and now it's called Visual Thinking, Inc., I began to adjust the model. I I began to adjust it in response to the need for engagement, the metrics of engagement, ownership, creativity, in short, the metric of power. I went my own way deciphering the pushback, and I created a new form, S plus plus 1. I kept the 5S, but I changed the form, the values, the principles, and I did that for 15 years, and I was successful. I was so successful that one day I got a faithful phone call from someone I had trained and certified. His name is Todd Allen. He's, and Todd called and asked me, Write a book. I had trained and certified him in 5S plus 1 and his whole team at the MEP in Colorado, and they were doing it. They were having wonderful success. And he said, I need something slightly different. I need you to write a different book because the clients that I'm working with will not let me use the word 5S, even though yours is different. I am not allowed to use the word 5S once I enter the plant. In fact, they told me just two days ago that if I did, I could no longer return. 5S, he went on to say, had been tried some seven years before and had made such a mess that people still remember the bad taste. And the operators and supervisors and management, it turned out, couldn't tolerate facing that again. Hmm? So I I thought, I said, what do you want me to do? What do I write about? And he said, write about everything that you've taught me, processes, mechanisms, values, principles, ownership, empowerment, creativity, but don't use the word 5S. Don't work, but keep the visual part, he said. It's the visual part that operators love. It's the creativity part through the visual language that operators love. Write about that. And writing a book is like a three-hour, a three-year uh, journey: conceptualizing it, shaping it, writing it, getting the pictures that represent, that correlate to what you're writing. When I said, You know, he's right. And I wrote work that makes sense the very book that we're talking about now it is it assumes so you know it takes as a premise that you've already cleared out the junk you've already made it safe you've already you've already done those things clean get rid of the junk and now you're ready to get visual but in this book I don't mention 5s once. I don't believe it's even mentioned in the foreword. Oh, that's right. Rhonda mentioned it as I read the other day. So I'm going to continue now. But that's the background of this book. This book is about operator-led visuality in all of its power in all of its diverse and highly creative forms. The components of that process, which we are in the midst of today in Chapter 2 when I'm going through the building blocks, this is the third show on building, sh- building blocks. The building blocks are the building blocks of visual thinking. They are the building blo- blocks of operators getting creative about solving their problems by recognizing motion as the footprint of the enemy, motion as the footprint of missing information, motion as another word for their struggle. Okay? So, we are still in Chapter 2, and we are still... On building block one if you remember building block one is about the two driving questions what do I need to know that I don't know right now in order to do my work I find the answer I create a visual device I pull that that holds that information that need to know and I pull that information to me when and as I need it and the second driving question what do I need to share What do I know that other people need to know that I need to share so they can do their work more safely, more completely, better quality, with greater flow, less struggle? What do I need to share? And if you'll remember, the way that's identified is by staying alert to other people's motion. And I was just on the verge of giving you a very vivid example of that, my favorite example, in fact, of this. A little bit more to remind you where we were about need to share. Questions are one of the most virulent and obvious indications that people are seeking information that is not available to them. They have to find someone who has the answer, and then they ask the question to pull the answer to them. So questions are a huge indication of the need to share. Okay? It's kind of like bingo. So let me tell you about Sheila Bowersmith, uh, an amazing machinist, a master machinist, and a visual thinker in the making at Denison Hydraulics. And I mentioned last week that about three years after this particular story, Parker hanifan came through to this high whip plant that was had gloriously organized and categorized its kinds of whip through this masterful system of borders. And they said, you know what? We want this plant, high-precision hydraulic pumps, very skilled workforce, and look at this improvement level. We can see their efforts. We can see their commitment. And we can see the brilliance of their visual thinking. And they acquired Denison Hydraulics. It became... Uh, Parker Dennison, and then it shifted to some name that it has now. But it's in Marysville, Ohio, and the plant looked yummy. Indeed, it looked completely gorgeous, and they acquired it. So Sheila had done her need to know. She had all of her gauges, all of her tools, all of her documentation beautifully visually ordered. She had her changeover. She created a kind of changeover tree on wheels. Not a changeover cart, but a changeover tree. And all of her instruments, all of her tools, her changeover apparatus was sitting on this tree. Long pole, and at the top there was uh, a a two-sided board that she mounted the tools on. It was very economical, really brilliant. And she called me one day. I've only received two phone calls from anyone ever from operators. Only two phone calls from operators in my life, and one was from Sheila, and the other one was from Rick L., who worked in the same plant. And she said, you know, you said I could call if I needed to. Yeah, yeah, sure. How can I help you, Karen? Said I'm Sorry, Sheila said I. How can I help you, Sheila? And she said, well, I've kind of done all the... Uh, visual order I know how to do. I've run out of stuff to do and I want to do more and I don't know how to find that more. And so I said to her, oh, wonderful. Just listen to the questions you are asked and then when you understand the question, supply the answer. And when you've done that, when the person walks away satisfied, think about turning that answer into a visual device. That's the need to share. And it is a moment in every implementation, by the way, that happens where you've exhausted the possibility of the need to know and you have to shift to an outward-facing understanding of the workplace. You look beyond the boundaries of your immediate bench, beyond the boundaries of your department and you begin to reach out. You can think about this as concentric circles. In the center of the concentric circle is you and you respond to the need to know and start building these circles of capability, of visual capability around you until you reach the edge, the limit of that possibility. All your questions are visually answered and you are in flow and you're doing the dance of work within your own cell, within your own desk area, your locus of control And what happens with the need to share question is that somebody comes to you, you answer the question they ask, and then you turn that answer into a visual device. You've just crossed another boundary. The concentric circle begins, but you've added another ring. And that ring goes out and touches other people and other departments. And this happens iteratively, kind of like a spiral. This happens iteratively, for you. But what happens in another area of people who have been trained in this and who are at the same point as you are, you've exhausted the need to know and you are now engaged in the need to share, is that they do the same thing. They start building their concentric circles around them, getting control over their corner of the world. And at some point they complete that. And then they stay alert to other people's questions. It may not happen in that precise, neat order, but it often does. People get control of their corner of the world, then they relax, and then they notice that which is outside of them because they've got the extra space. They've got the extra energy. They can lift their eyes up from their own immediate work area because it's no longer a struggle, and they can look outwards, and the concentric circles begin to reach out reach out, reach out, reach out with each new device. You are serving in the need to share. You are serving others very, very specifically. So what happened, and I'm going to take that analogy further after I tell you what happened to Sheila. So Sheila is working at her machine. We've had the phone call, and she told me about this later. Right. I, I came by, I saw this great visual device, which was not need-to-know. Came, I came by, and I said, what the heck? And she said, oh, yeah, well, I did what you told me to do, Gwendolyn. I was l- looking for someone who had a question. I was on, on, the, on, the, on the hunt for somebody's question that I could answer and do the need to share. Anyway, one day, the new planner came into my area Karen, and she was crawling through the whip. She was walking through the whip and kind of crouched down low, and I couldn't help but notice her. She was walking in such a strange way. And I said, Karen, hi. Uh, uh, Can can I help you you seem to be looking for something and Karen said oh I didn't want to interrupt you oh I'm so sorry I'm new here and I didn't want to interrupt you and and I I thought I could figure it out myself and Sheila said it's okay it's okay tell me what you need well I I just I just she was still hesitant I just need to know what you what you're running right now what are you running right now oh Sheila said oh that's easy and Sheila told her it was a seven, the N785s. And Karen said, thank you, left the area, and Sheila said, bingo. Now I'm going to turn that answer into a visual device so I never have to answer it again. And Karen never, and or any other planner, never has to ask it again. And what she did was, on the face of her blue CNC, she taped a yellow triangle, welded a heavy clip at the top, and put the order that she was running in the clip. That's all she did. She created a kind of fence around the space, put the clip there, and put the plastic bag with her pink work order slip on the face of the machine. And the next time Karen came by, she said, look, Karen, anytime you need to know what I'm running, just go to this little yellow area and you'll see my work order. And if you don't see anything in there, you can be sure that there's nothing in the machine at this moment. Oh, wonderful. And that was it. Such a simple device, such a tiny device. Who could even put a price tag on the impact of that? But it relieved the struggle for Karen and it relieved the interruption for Sheila. Not that Sheila minded being interrupted, but she understood there would be multiples of that and that it was vexing and frustrating to have to ask that question again and again. It was an interruption of the flow that she would otherwise simply enjoy doing her work rather than worrying about. Karen, that's the need to share. The point is not that we don't like other people, I'm reading now. The point is not that we don't like other people or don't like answering their questions. We simply know that our life, our work life, and theirs is about something greater than chasing down informational tidbits. Visuality, starting with the two driving questions clears the way so we can pay more attention to our actual work content. Okay? So let me link up need to know and need to share. As with all information, all visual information, the impact of visually answering your need to know and need to share question is more than simply embedding those answers into the physical landscape of work. Because other people in your area are engaged in creating visual solutions as well, there is a remarkable multiplying effect. The result is an impact far greater than the number of devices in a given work area. Similar to dropping a pebble in a stream, the ripples last longer and reach further than the first splash. So we're going to talk about those concentric circles again. Look at the ripples. They are concentric circles. This is an image of you applying the first driving question, what do I need to know? The visual answers that result define your locus of control. The result of doing that, of answering your need to know question, is that you gain control over your corner of the world. Now, let's do the multiples of that. We start with you, a single eye answering the need to know. What happens when other visual thinkers in the making join you? You have a set of concentric circles, each with a person in the center, answering their need to know. A fabric of visually competent workstations begins to populate your department. Each visual thinker chases down the various forms of motion that make work a struggle for him or her and eradicates or minimizes the information deficit that caused them. The result is a new level of individual competency and pride across the entire work area. Time for the second driving question. What do I need to share? With that question, you reach beyond your immediate workstation and look to visually share vital information with those around you. Those visual answers define your sphere of influence, not control, your sphere of influence. The first was your locus of control, the need to know. The second is your sphere of influence. These answers help you provide responses, visual responses For people outside your immediate area, just as you saw in Sheila's visual solution. Notice how far that influence can extend. Soon the other visual thinkers will join you in generating need to share, need to share devices. Doing that creates a fabric of intention, improved performance and goodwill across the organization. This network of connections weaves the enterprise together, area by area, person by person, visual device by visual device. So imagine that. Imagine five work areas with the need to know concentric circles reaching the boundary of your locus co- locus of control. And then let's just say that those are green, the boundary is the last green concentric circle. And then you engage, I'm talking now, I'm commenting now, then you engage in the need to share, and let's just say that those concentric circles, which surround the green, are purple. And you get this purple band of concentric circles. And suddenly they overlap another band of concentric circles that are purple. And another purple band of concentric circles. And another purple band. Like ripples moving out from the center of a person until they reach other other ripples. Something that you see when it rains on a lake you see the rain creating ripples, one raindrop and then another raindrop and a third raindrop and a fourth raindrop, all creating these concentric circles and events eventually overlapping each other and creating a kind of very beautiful turbulence. That's the way need to know, need to share. This first building block of visuality works. At the heart of each of those building blocks Let me say that another way, I'm commenting. At the heart of this building block is the I, meaning the individual. It is why we say that visuality is I, individually driven. Now I'm going to read, Summing Up the I. When you begin to implement visuality in your own work area, you start, you must start, by responding to your own need to know. Why? Because those are the questions that you know best. Those are the questions you know best. You've heard them again and you've asked them again and again and again and again. As you build a firm foundation of visual answers to this question, you get more and more control of your corner of the world. Then you turn to others and help them get the answers they need. You share the vital information they need through visual devices that you create on their behalf. You share. The way that sounds when it's vocalized is, how may I help you? Can you hear the we in that? Can you hear the self-leadership? Can you hear the service that you can render to others simply by helping them retrieve, get the answers they need? to continue their work, to be safe, to flow. The eye-driven approach is a deeply team-minded process, one that asks each of us to take personal responsibility both for ourselves and for helping others. Just remember that that eye resides in each of us. So when other people in your area begin inventing visual solutions to their need to know, They are using their own eye as the anchor. Same with your supervisor. She'll plug into her own eye to create visual devices that serve her need to know because it's her need. And then she will move on to her need to share, which is often your need to know. Ditto for managers, engineers, marketing people, and the CEO as each of you starts participating in the visual conversion of your company. The eye becomes the anchor for each of you. Your eye, their eye, our individual eyes. The result is not chaos or anarchy, as some might fear. The result is a splendid, Self-ordering, self-explaining, self-regulating, and self-improving work environment that makes sense to each and every person in it. The result is a visual workplace, true, deep, and wide. The result is a workplace that speaks. Eye-driven is the first building block of visual thinking. And I want to make a few comments on that. What I just described is powerful, really beyond measure, because it invites and gives a role to the individual and the individual will. It is saying, what you think, what you do, what you care about matters. Your contribution can come directly from you. Your contribution to improvement and to visual improvement can come directly from you, uncensored, except if it interferes with someone else or harms you or someone else or has the potential of doing that, create, create, enjoy the strength of your mind, enjoy the imagination, your imagination, invent, experiment. This is not methodology. This is a value and an organizing concept. I have, ele- I have elevated it to the level of a principle of visuality. It is that important. And let me say also, make it clear that that eye is in each of us, therefore, the visual contributions of operators come from that eye, and so do the visual contributions of supervisors. But the eye that the supervisor serves is their own eye. And the same with the CEO, the same with the plant manager, the same with purchasing staff and the purchasing director. There are specific visual devices that come from the level of organi- of the organization, the function that you play in the organization, but the I remains the same. It is your personal understanding of motion and the information deficits that trigger that motion that create struggle for you. This is fundamental. And, and by all means, I invite you, if this rings your bell, use it. Use it. One of the exercises that we give in relationship to this, to operators, but also when people come to our public seminars, we say, here, take a memo pad and let's find out how visual you are. Do an experiment just for the next three days. And you don't have to show anybody the results of your experiment. But keep track of the questions that you are asked. Maybe do that in the front of your book. That'll be Your need to share. Keep track. Just put a hatch mark. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Fifteen questions. And it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Huh, that's interesting. (laughs) Maybe even write down what those questions were and look for recurrences. Do that in the front of your memo pad. Then flip it over. These are one of these top bounded, binded um, memo pads. I like those better. Just flip it over and keep track of the questions that you ask. The questions that you ask that you need to know. And maybe even, yes, count them and maybe even keep track of those questions. And then when you have a moment, see how far you can go in turning those answers into a visual device, so you never have to ask that question again, and you never have to interrupt anybody to get that answer, okay? This is something that we call the first question is free, and it is part of the pages of uh, Chapter 2 in the Need to Know section, and I'm just going to read it to you because it may ring your bell, okay? Okay? It's called the first question is free rule. And this works really, really beautifully with supervisors. But it's in a yellow inset, which means it's pretty much for supervisors and management. Some, and it reads, some people mistakenly think their real job is to answer questions. That may be true if you are a customer service rep or a reference librarian. But for everyone else... Learn and apply. The first question is free rule and turn those questions into visual answers. here how it works. Number one, notice. Notice the first time you are asked a given question. For example, if you are a team leader or supervisor, somebody will probably ask at the start of every shift, what am I supposed to make now? Or what am I supposed to do now? So the first Step is to notice. The second step, and there'll be four. Second step is to answer. Answer the question the way you always do, clearly, completely, and politely, but with this difference. As that person walks away, say to yourself, that's one. Step three, wait. Wait. Wait until you are asked the same question again by that same person or anyone else. What am I supposed to make now? Or, what am I supposed to do now? As before, you answer clearly, completely, and politely. Step four. Step four is create. As that person walks away, say to yourself, that's two. The first question is free, but now that I've heard that same question a second time, it's time to create a visual device, so I never have to answer that question again, and no one ever has to ask it. I call that the first question is free rule, and I offer it to supervisors and managers to kind of get them into the swing of things while you're doing your own operator-led visuality. But you get the message here. So the first building block of visuality is eye-driven. And those two questions illuminate what that means. The second building block is standards. Let's look at the definition again of a visual workplace. A visual workplace is a self-ordering, self-explaining, self-regulating, and self-improving work environment where what is supposed to happen does happen on time, every time, day or night, because of visual devices. The second part of that definition states that in such a workplace, I'm repeating now, what is supposed to happen does happen. What exactly does that mean? What is supposed to happen? The answer is your standards. Your work standards are supposed to happen. And that brings us to building block two standards. When we use the term standards in workplace visuality, we are not referring to Time or accounting standards used in bids, quotes, or contracts. Instead, we mean the information that defines exactly what we are supposed to do, what we are supposed to do, and how we're supposed to do it. The what and the how. More precisely, the what refers to your technical standards, and the how refers to your procedural standards. Your technical standards. A technical standard is a product or process specification, dimension, value, or tolerance, the detailed requirements found in engineering worksheets and drawings. These requirements are the precise values you add as you convert material into product or as you develop and deliver a service. A product or service your customer wants to buy. Here are examples of technical standards. Outer diameter, OD, inner diameter, ID, pressure sensitivity, coil resistance, cut length, heat treat temperature, gloss level, the exact degree of radiation for this patient's site, dilution level for Taxotere, a chemotherapy drug. Required response time for a fire insurance claim. Required end-of-the-month sales figures due date. Once you identify the spec, the technical standard, your next step is to make that standard visual, that specification visual. When you do, you visually anchor that tech, that technical standard, into the physical landscape of work. So, one of the examples that is shown is a wonderful technical standard that was invented at United Electric Controls outside of Boston. And it's about plungers, and it's about switches and controls. So, a plunger is something that you put into a switch or a control, and it moves. The size of the outer diameter of a plunger has to fit perfectly with a little bit of space so movement is possible inside of what's called the bushing. It has to, if it's too large, if the outer diameter is too large, it won't slide inside the bushing. If it is too small, it'll be too loose. It has to move within the bushing without rubbing and without swimming. So, we see a hand holding a plunger. The plunger may be too large, may be too small, may be just right, the outer diameter. We won't know until final inspection. But in this particular process, operation, at United Electric Controls, the operators got tired of finding out that the plunger coming off the machine was either too large or too small and not just right. They decided to do something about it. They actually knew that the problem was in the machine, that the machine kept moving out of adjustment and was making irregular plungers so they knew that they were already in trouble, that they were already going to be making bad product until that machine got fixed. And they took the process into their own hands. And what they did was they developed a way to ensure that no defective pl- plunger traveled downstream. And to begin with, they said, right now we're going to look for an OD that is an outer diameter that is too large. Well, the way that they did it was to embed the answer to the question, is this plunger too large into the process of work itself? They created a visual solution on such a high level that it's called Pokey Oak. And the solution was this. The plungers would come off of the machine and be put into a blue box, which would then move downstream to test, to final test, when the plunger was married with the bushing to see if it moved, if it worked. But what they decided to do, the operators decided to do, is that as soon as the plunger came out of the machine, they were going to inspect it 100%. And the way they did that was to mount a bushing, on a plate that crossed the top of the blue bin. Small blue bin, you could pick it up easily in one hand. You'd be able to hold it. And they put the bushing, they mounted the bushing on the plate, and the operator simply dropped each plunger through the bushing, and the bushing checked the size. If the plunger got stuck, it was set aside as being too large. If the plunger... Move through easily, it was accepted. They were checking just one dimension, the outer diameter. If they saw that they had repeatable problems related to the inner diameter of the bushing, they would test it some other way. Okay? That's an example of taking a technical procedure and turning it into a visual device. The visuality here has to do, if you will, with the conversation between the plunger and the bushing. The plunger is taking its cue from the bushing, and the bushing is talking to the plunger, saying, you're just right or you're too fat. Hmm? So this conversation, when it is so deeply embedded into the process of work, that attribute is talking to attribute, is called a visual guarantee in my dictionary, or visual, or pokyok, the way that my sensei sensei Shigeru Shingo called it. But this is visual information sharing. This is information between the objects of work because you have designed it made it possible for these two parts to converse and to arrive at a conclusion. That's a technical standard made visual. A procedural standard, the second part of this building block, which is your standards, a procedural standard is a method or an SOP, a standard operating procedure, a preset sequence of steps that tell you how to do or make something or perform a task, the procedural standards tell you exactly how to achieve your technical standards. Procedural standards create outcomes. Technical standards give you the specification for that outcome, the two work together. Do you need to form a two inch aluminum ingot into a 0.5 millimeter thick coil? Follow the step-by-step roadmap that is your procedural standard. It will give you the how. Do you want to insert an IV precisely into a patient's arm? Follow the SOP for that. Same with programming that CNC machine in the radial department. Follow the SOP. Here are some more examples of procedural standards. How to rivet a bolt. How to and listen to the how question. How to feed how to set a feed rate, how to weld a rounded joint, how to change over the winder machine in less than nine minutes, please. How to tighten a four nut wheel, how to verify a chemotherapy regi- regime, how to close out the monthly books. Once you identify a standard operating procedure, and it usually is a problematic one, one that wiggles. Find out where the wiggle is and then make it visual. And when you do, you anchor that SOP into the physical landscape of work. I have a perfect example to share with you. and I'm going to try to squeeze it in before the end of the show. So this has to do with wiring harnesses that are incorporated into an automobile or truck or a bus as the electrical system. These wiring harnesses are very complex and also very delicate. They all have terminal endings so that they can be plugged into parts of the vehicle. When you make the harness, which is already a very complex SOP, you have to store the completed harness, harness carefully and usually on some kind of a pole that is elevated sufficiently off the ground that the terminal endings don't hit the ground because if they hit the ground, hit the floor, they are often damaged and then become unusable. And if you do this microscopically, you never find it out until final test. And here we have the problem again. I will conclude this, hold you in suspense. This is a cliffhanger and tell you how the team solved this when... We meet again the next time. I want to thank you very much for your uh, taking time out of your busy day to tune into our show and to listen to Visual Workplace Radio. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. See you the next time, and let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.